And I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 12 this morning. And my intention is to read the first nine verses. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's wife, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Shechem, unto the plain of Moreh, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east, and there he builded an altar unto the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeying, going on still towards the south. Thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee that you would open up your word unto us, that we might see all of the wonderful blessings we have in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, I have a title for this morning's sermon, and it is A Turf War Amidst Heavenly Promises. A Turf War Amidst Heavenly Promises. So I wanted us to appreciate um, promises that are set before us in Scripture. And um, the reason is, is that we will trust in the Lord, that we will rest in Him, that we will not look to ourselves to do anything. You'll notice in verses 2 and 3 here, it says all the things that the Lord is going to do. It doesn't say we have to do anything. It says quite plainly that He will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee. Um, and so we should appreciate that all the promises of God uh, in Him are yea and in Him, amen. The promises that we receive, we receive through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how you view these things, how you view verses 2 and verses 3 and verses 7, those are the ones I'm going to talk about this morning, have a lot to do with, I think, the way you look at the world today and the way you conduct yourselves in terms of um, what I see people in the Christian community doing is they move from grace ever so subtly to works. From the pulpit, it's not uncommon for pastors who will preach grace and yet hammer the, the uh, congregation with moralistic preaching, telling them they need to behave themselves, uh, which is always a good thing to do, but as though there are some um, benefits to be derived from God um, by behaving themselves in the context that God will then owe them something as though he's a debtor to them. No, so I do want to be careful with that. You do want to behave yourself. And the Bible does say to walk worthy of the vocation wherein ye have been called. In other words, walk in such a manner that you appreciate all the things that Christ has done for you. So always in this scripture is the tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. However, in their hearts, they solely, subtly start to cling to works. And the book of Galatians warns about that. He says, hey, having begun... 
uh, in the spirit are you now made perfect in the flesh. In other words, I appreciate that God saved me by grace, but now I have to do something to uh, maintain the promises that God has given me, which were all unconditional promises. And so um, if you walk away from anything this morning, it would be simply this, that you are saved by grace alone, uh, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And what happens as we dig into Scripture, we start to read things like verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12 and verse 7, and we start to get things convoluted in our head in terms of what nation is God going to build here? He says in verse 2, and I will make of thee a great nation. Um, What nation is he talking about there? And up in verse 7, he says, unto thy seed will I give this land. Who exactly is going to receive the land, and what land are they going to receive? And so... How you understand that and, uh, and appreciate that will color your view of um, eschatology, which is not that big of a deal with the exception of this. When Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished, what did he mean by that? So depending on your view of eschatology, you might think to yourself, well, he, he meant it's almost finished because he's got yet to do something else. There's going to be a restoration of some kind of an earthly kingdom here from which he's going to rule, set up the sacrifices again and we're going to enter this loop again where the law is reintroduced to the people and I would share with you that that's not the case push that all aside when Jesus was on the cross and said it is finished that's exactly what he meant he meant it is finished so God says here in Genesis chapter 12 that he's going to make a great nation out of Abram so we ask ourselves well again what nation will that be and what land are they going to receive who's going to receive it so i would remind us that god really did do that for abraham he had three wives the bible says he has three wives Uh, hagar was a concubine but she's also described as a wife in another place the bible uses that language his first wife was sarai name was changed to sarah by whom was born isaac from whence came, um, you know, Jacob and Esau, and then that leads to the line of Christ. So truly there's a blessing that the world will have in every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue through Christ, through Sarah. Well, then there was Hagar, and that's where Abraham and Sarah and his wife thought God maybe needed just a little bit of help. So maybe if he lay with Hagar, then that would be the vehicle by which the promise would come. But that's not true, as I shared with us last week, that Sarah and Abraham are one flesh, so promises to Abraham include those uh, include Sarah in that well from Hagar comes Ishmael and Ishmael was the firstborn of Abraham and then after those women uh, went their way uh, Sarah having died he married Keturah from whence came many children out of Ishmael came many children too so from Abraham literally came a lot of people came from him so who gets the land and they've been fighting over that land ever since now The Ishmaelites would argue, well, we're actually the firstborn of Abraham, so the land belongs to us because we're going to use the Bible as as, um, title to the land, and so we get that land. So they've been fighting with the Israelites ever since that time. The Israelites would say, no, the promises were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you need to be part of that fleshy line if you want to have um, the benefit of the promises that God gave you. So it's just caused a lot of trouble over a lot of years, and so it's important for us, I think, to appreciate what is in view there. National Israel, as you are well aware of, enjoys a very strong political lobby in Washington, D.C., because there's lots of Christian churches that view this uh, promise made to Abraham in a literal sense, that it's meant to his uh, those who are born of him of the flesh. And so they want to support National Israel and their political agenda, thinking that if they do so, then they will receive some kind of a blessing from God, because it says that he will bless those that bless him. 
So they look at it purely in a superficial way, thinking that as Christians, that if we support their agenda, then they will get some blessings from them, that they are being obedient to God by sending money to support Israel and supporting a political lobby that um, advocates on their behalf. Rule of thumb here, God is never a debtor to man. God is never a debtor man. So if you think you send, think sending money to support uh, national Israel in a political context is going to warrant you some favor from God, you're throwing your money down a hole. God is never a debtor to man. Now, having said this, I would have you to appreciate that I am sympathetic to national Israel because they've been beat up for centuries. Um, and they have suffered many things um, at the hand of the Lord and there's a reason for that. They're, they have done many things to my benefit. You know, the scripture says that to what advantage uh, do they have? And, that's, and he says, well, much, because unto them are committed the oracles of God. So I appreciate the fact that they were the custodians of the scripture. God gave them the law to teach everybody a lesson that you cannot keep the law, that that's not the methodology by which a man can get the glory. The only vehicle is through faith and the grace of God. So I learned all of that by virtue of their suffering and God, of course, in imparting that truth to me. So the Israelites made a mistake that lots of people make with respect to God in so much as they enter into a conditional covenant with God. Don't ever enter into a covenant with God because you will never keep your part of it. Remember the group, the Promise Keepers? I remember working with a guy that was attending Promise Keepers meetings, and I looked at him and I said... (laughs) There's only one promise keeper, and that's Jesus Christ. I said, you are not a promise keeper. You will not keep your promises to God. So the Israelites um, still to this day have not learned that lesson. But nevertheless, in Exodus chapter 19, God said that he would make a special people of them if, if they did what he told them to do. So they entered into a conditional covenant with them. And three places in Exodus... Uh, Chapter 19, verse 8, chapter 19, verse 24, and verse 37. Three times they say they're going to keep the covenant, and then it's ratified in blood. What could go wrong? So, they had trouble keeping the covenant, but they had entered into it. And I want us to again appreciate that God will hold us to keeping the covenant. Now, God was very gracious, and he was very merciful to them. So I'm going to read... um, a number of scriptures to help us to appreciate that. In the book of Joshua, chapter 23, I'm going to read verses 14 through 16. 14 through 16 of Joshua 23. Joshua is speaking to the Israelites. This is towards the end of his career. It's the end of the book of Joshua. And he's saying to them, And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. In other words, I'm going to the grave. And ye know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things with the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. God was very gracious to him, and Joshua's laying it out. Hey, everything God said he would do, he has done for you. Verse 15, Therefore it shall come to pass that as all good things are come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, so shall the Lord bring upon you all evil things until he have destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given unto you. Now, last week we read from Joshua chapter 24 where Joshua lays it out and says, you know what, you guys were idolaters. Your father Abraham was an idolater back in Ur of the Chaldees. 
You were idolaters when you were in Egypt. You were idolaters when you were wandering in the, in the wilderness. You were idolaters during the conquest of Canaan, and you're idolaters to this day. So he's warning them here that God took care of you, and in spite of all of your um, conduct and behavior and your idolatrous ways, nevertheless, he filled all the good promises to you. But pay attention here, because when you go astray, and they already have, he's going to nuke you. Verse 16, when you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed yourselves to them, then shall the angel of the Lord be kindled against you, and ye shall perish quickly from off the good land which he hath given you. The people that hold to Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, as though that's an eternal promise to national Israel, will not read verses 15 and 16. They'll read verse 14 and they'll stop there and they won't read the rest of it. That, hey, these guys were in a conditional covenant. It's a two-edged sword. You'll be blessed if you keep it and you will suffer if you fail to keep it. So, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 28 and verse 63, Deuteronomy 28, 63, the Lord says, And it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you not, and ye shall be plucked from off the land whether thou goest to possess it. So the, again, the Lord is warning him here. This first one, this one in Deuteronomy is Moses. The other one is in Joshua. And so we should appreciate that the Lord will um, deal with them according to the way that they, uh, whether or not they are obedient um, to him. I'm going to look at Deuteronomy 28, 63. Um, I think I just read that. I'm sorry. Um, so again, we need to appreciate that when God makes a promise with somebody, he will keep it, and that includes the downside of the covenant. Now, in spite of the fact that they were um, idolatrous people, nevertheless, God gave them all of the land that he said he would give them. In Joshua chapter 21, verse 43 to 45, the Lord says through Joshua, he says, And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest round about according to all that he had sware unto the fathers, and there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their land. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. And so we should appreciate that whatever troubles national Israel has to this day, whatever political troubles they've had in the world, is rooted in the fact that they did not keep their end of the conditional covenant. Deuteronomy 28 will just really make you unhappy to read. It's got many blessings for obedience and lots of curses for disobedience. So both of those applied to them. So if we were to put all that aside and just ask ourselves, okay, so what was the Lord talking about? What did he promise Abraham? Does that apply to us? What land are we going to inherit? What kind of people are in view? Is it Palestine? We know that Abraham walked all through it. He lived in it, and he was buried in Palestine. And yet when uh, Stephen is speaking before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7, which we read last week also, but I want us to look at it again, Stephen is speaking before the Sanhedrin here. He's going to say something that's very interesting. Then said the high priest, 
Are these saying so? The high priest is, is questioning Stephen, and he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. We can all agree on that. God appeared to him. He brought him out. Then said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran, and from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land where ye now dwell. Okay? He brought Abraham right where we are standing this day. Abraham came into the land right where we are all are standing. We're having this meeting here in the land that Abraham came to. And then he says in verse 5, And he, meaning God, gave him none inheritance in it. No, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for possession and to his seed after him, when, as yet, he had no child. Now, there's a real cognitive disconnect there. He said he brought Abraham into the land. He said he promised it to give it to him. And yet Abraham, like I said, lived there, dwelt there, camped there, died there, didn't receive any promises there. But he uses something a little bit different language here that I want you to look at. Look at verse 5 again. Who was the promise given to? It was given to him for possession and to his seed. Him and his seed. There's a slightly different twist there, and so we should appreciate that. So, again, Stephen is saying here, hey, I, I know he lived here, and I know he passed through all the land, but he didn't receive the inheritance. Not so much as set his foot on it. Well, didn't he walk through it? Didn't he live in it? But yet he says he hadn't set his foot on it. So now we should appreciate, when we read in the book of Hebrews, what is written there. Clearly, the promise God made to Abraham is something different than what people think it is. So Stephen is throwing these guys on their head in terms of what they believe. So again in Hebrews, I'll pick it up in verse uh, um, 8. We read this last week, but now we're bringing other truths out of it. Hebrews 11.8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance... So he was called to go to a place where he would receive an inheritance. Stephen has said he was there but didn't receive an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country. See, he's supposed to inherit it, and yet he's a stranger in it. Dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, and heirs, heirs, heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Clearly, he's looking for something different than what might be found in the land of Canaan. Then he goes on through faith. Sarah also herself received strength and conceived seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one of him as good as dead, so many as the what? Stars. Hang on to that. Stars of the sky and multitude... And as the sand, keep a mind on that one, of the seashore innumerable. All right, so who sprang from him? Stars and sand of the seashore. Verse 13, all these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed them that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Remember what Christ says about Abraham? He says, he rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham's looking for something different than a physical structure on this earth. He's looking for something different than the land. He's looking to Christ. Verse 14, 
For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. He's standing in it, and yet he's seeking another country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they had come out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Oh, he's looking for a heavenly country. Maybe that's what the promise is. Maybe it's a heavenly country and not not a piece of real estate on this earth. So, again, God gave them every good promise, gave the Israelites everything that he said he would give them. And so we appreciate what we read here in so much as God has got something different in view for him. Now, our deacon read from um, Romans chapter 4, and so let's look at what God says Abraham was promised. In Romans chapter 4, in verse 13, we read, For the promise that he should be the heir of Palestine was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. No, it's not what the promise says. It says, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world. That's the Greek word is cosmos. Clearly, God promised something different to Abraham than what we understand it or what most people understand it to be. As a pastor, I used to sit under one said, people are always trying to shortchange Abraham. They're trying to give him a postage stamp piece of land. And God says here in Romans 4.13 that through faith, he would inherit the cosmos. He would inherit the world. So I think we can appreciate that he is going to be an heir of the new heaven and the new earth because Hebrews 11 just shared with us very plainly that they're seeking a heavenly country. They're seeking a heavenly country. And they're not seeking something on this earth. Now, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, the Lord tells us that the gospel was preached unto Abraham. In Galatians 3, 8, it says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. We just read that in Genesis chapter 12. God told Abraham, in thee all nations shall be blessed. God's telling us here that that's the gospel. Well, if you think a promise of having lots of kids and a promise of of being given a piece of real estate on this earth is the gospel, then you are mistaken. The gospel means, comes from the Anglo-Saxon word good spell, meaning good news. Christ Jesus is the gospel. Christ Jesus is the gospel, the person and the work of Christ Jesus. Who he was, uh, what he did, and who he did it for is the gospel. So it says here, Galatians, that Abraham was preached the gospel when God shared that with him, that of him he would make a great nation. Clearly, it's referring to Christ and not some temporal um, possession of land or having lots of um, children. Um, In verse 7, Now, we're shifting a little bit to we're going to start talking about people, this great nation. In verse 7 of Galatians chapter 3, he says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Oh, now we're talking about a different group of people than maybe we thought he was talking about. There's going to be people that are related to him in the flesh, and there are going to be people that are related to him in a spiritual context, in so much as that the uh, children of Abraham are all those that are justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. 
All right, now let's go take a look at Romans chapter 9, where the Lord's going to narrow the focus down a little bit and help us to appreciate this again. In Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, he says, Romans 9, 6 through 8, he says, For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. In other words, just because you're related to Israel doesn't mean you're really an Israeli. In Romans 2, he says, a Jew is one who is circumcised in the heart and not in the flesh. So he's reiterating that point. Not all Israel, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Oh, okay, right now he's just eliminated uh, Ishmael. He's eliminated uh, the child born of Hagar. He's just eliminated everybody born of Keturah. And he's even narrowing it down here in a spiritual context. It's just because you're um, an Israeli doesn't mean you're part of God's spiritual kingdom. So I'll keep reading here. Um, verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. So the Lord is narrowing it down here, and I want us to appreciate again that the promised child was Isaac, and that is through whom the seed shall come. So you have, in this context, you've got two possessions of land, and you've got two groups of people, two nations, both from Abraham. You've got national Israel, which is of the flesh from Abraham, and you've got spiritual Israel, which are the children of promise. You've got those that are circumcised in the flesh. You've got those that are circumcised in the heart. You've got a political organization and kingdom. And then you have Christ's church. You have those that are part of a, um, a works-based covenant. And then you have those that are of faith. You have those that are in bondage and you have those that are under grace. In Galatians chapter 4, the Lord lays out that very simple truth about those that are in bondage and those that are um, enjoying grace. In chapter 4 of Galatians, verse 22, he lays it all out here for us. And he says, in verse 22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. We're not even going to talk about Keturah. We're just talking about Sarah and Hagar. But he was who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise. So he's setting us before here. We've got a fleshy relationship and we've got a one that is by faith through the promise. Which things are an allegory? Verse 24. For these are the two covenants. The one from the Mount Sinai which engendereth to bondage which is Agar. He's telling us here that Agar, the Egyptian woman who was a slave, represents the covenant of, uh, of works, of law, and those are in bondage. He says very plainly, verse 25, for this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which is now, and is in bondage with her children. Oh, there's two Jerusalems. No surprise, there's, there's two Israels. There's a fleshy one, there's the political one, and there's the Jerusalem of the earth, which is in bondage. There's the heavenly Jerusalem, which is part of the spiritual Israel, which is above. Verse 26, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. And so he goes down there in verse 28. He says, now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. So there we have, we have children of bondage and children of 
promise. Now, what's interesting here now, let's go take a look at some verses in Genesis where he's going to tell Abraham how many children he's going to have. And so in Genesis chapter 13, verse 16, he's going to promise him a lot of children. Genesis 13, verse 16. I'm going to read this whole section here because, again, we're going to see land and we're going to see children. But I'll just mention verse 16 first. He's talking to Abraham, Abraham, and he says, I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. That's a lot of children. As much as the dust of the earth. What did we read in the other sections? As many as the stars in heaven. So let's go look at Genesis 15, 6. In Genesis 15, 6. And again, a promise of, of the seed. And he says, And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. What's it going to be? Dust of the earth or the stars of heaven? Genesis twenty-two seventeen. And in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. Then he says, And thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. So we're seeing this again here. The Lord is using two different analogies, analogies in terms of promising how many people will come from Abraham. So what does 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 40, have to say about something like this? What talks about the glory of the terrestrial versus the glory of the celestial? In 1 Corinthians 15, 40, it says, There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. So let me ask you this. Would you rather be thought of as the dust of the earth? or as the stars in the heaven. Which one do you think is more glorifying unto God? One is a result of sin. The Lord says to um, Adam in Genesis chapter 3, uh, because of his sin, dust thou art and dust thou shalt return. So the dust analogy is associated with sin, but what do you suppose the one of uh, heaven is, is uh, associated with? Well, it's associated with Christ, who is the bright and morning star. So if I'm going to be as the stars of heaven, I'd rather have that analogy um, made with respect to me. Now, up in verse 44 of 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about two different bodies. You've got one is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Albeit that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. First man is of the earth, earthly, that would be the, like the dust, the second man is the Lord from heaven. That would be like being as the stars of heaven. As is the earthly, such as they also that are earthly, and as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall bear the image of the heavenly. So again, we see here in 1 Corinthians 15, we see these analogies break apart and separate that we've got dust, which is earthly, and we have stars, which is heavenly. So that's consistent with what we've talked about here in terms of having national Israel and spiritual Israel. We've got those that are in bondage and those that are the uh, beneficiaries 
of grace. We have terrestrial and we have celestial. We have earthly and we have heavenly. And so again, we have national Israel and we have spiritual Israel. So, who were the promises made to? How can we break that apart and how can we separate that? How can we appreciate what is in view there? Well, the Lord is very gracious and he helps us understand the promise and break the code for us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. In Galatians 3.16, he breaks it apart for us that we would be able to read Genesis and understand who the promises are made to. And Stephen reiterated it for us in Acts chapter 7. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. All the promises are through Christ, and we are the beneficiaries of that. But the way to break it down is, what does he say here? The promise was to Abraham and his seed. There's a difference. Not to his seed, but Abraham and his seed. That's Galatians 3.16. We saw that in um, Acts chapter 7, verse, uh, maybe it was verse 5, so I'll look, I want you to see that again, because this is another place in the New Testament where we can see that. Verse 5, he said that, yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed. So he's reiterating that the promise is to Abraham and to his seed, just as the Lord tells us in Galatians chapter um, 3 there. So, now let's look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Genesis 12, verse 7. And who was that land given to? In Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, it says, And the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He didn't give it to Abraham and his seed. He just gave it to his seed. What's in view there? the dust of the earth. That's national Israel. That land is going to national Israel, and that will later be associated with the um, conditional covenant. Now, if you'll turn over a page, look at chapter 13. I'll read verses 14, 15, and then I'll jump down to 17. In verse um, 14 of Genesis chapter 13, we read, And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that thou seest. How much land can he see? There are no dimensions here. Do you notice that? There are no dimensions here. To thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. This is an unconditional promise, an unconditional covenant with Abraham, where God says he's going to give him something forever. If I can use my fingers as an analogy here, you see how they're interwoven here together. When you read through the scripture and you're looking for the eternal covenant, you've got to be able to separate the conditional covenant from the unconditional covenant. Genesis 12, 7, that's conditional. That land is just a national Israel, and there are going to be conditions which he will later set forth. This one is unconditional. Now, in verse 16, he's going to drop down. He's going to talk about national Israel. That's different. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. This is where you're having to separate the two, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Now, in verse 17, no dimensions on the land. Arise and walk through the land, the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. 
So no dimensions. So when God is making an eternal and a heavenly promise to Abraham, there are, there are no dimensions associated with that land. And again, um, let's go now look at Genesis 15, verse 18. In Genesis 15, verse 18, again, you have to separate because he's just given him an unconditional covenant, and now we're going to drop back into something uh, conditional. In verse uh, 18 of Genesis 15, it says, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said unto him, Unto thy seed have I given this land. Notice it's not to Abraham and his seed. It's only to his seed. Unto thee have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river of Euphrates. Specific dimensions. The Canaanites, the uh, Kenizzites, the Catamorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaims, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Physical land with physical people living on it, and guess what? You're going to have to push them off the land. So, again, when you think about the land that the Israelites hold today, um, it's supposed to go from the river of Egypt all the way up to the river Euphrates, and yet, again, um, people seem to think that it only includes that little postage stamp. It was much greater than that, and at one point, they actually held all the land. I read to you where God said that. You held all the land. I gave it to you anyway. There's a place in First Kings where the Lord talks about David going up to recover the borders up to the river Euphrates. So God was gracious to them. He was merciful to them. He gave it to them, um, but they couldn't hold on to it because they were disobedient to him, so he took them off the land. Now, flip over to uh, Genesis chapter 17, and again, we're going to see the promises are to Abraham and his seed. In Genesis chapter 17, I'll pick it up in verse 7. He says, well, I'll pick it up in verse 6. I'll pick it up in verse 5. I'm sorry. Verse 5. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abraham, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. Isaac has yet to be born. God calls those things which be not as though they were because it's going to happen. He's also, again, a spiritual kingdom is in view. Verse 6, and I will, God's going to do it, I will make thee exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of thee and kings shall come out of thee. Obviously that refers to Christians. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed. This is an eternal covenant that includes Christians. That's the church. It includes Christ. After thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee a land wherein thou art a stranger and all the lands of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant. Therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. Now in verse 10, he's going to shift to a conditional covenant. But that section in there, God is unconditionally telling Abraham what he is going to do. It's to thee and thy seed. As we read in Galatians, the God, he's clearly talking about Christ. So we want to be able to pull those apart. Promises to Abraham and his seed are promises that we enjoy in Christ. Where there are no dimensions... That's involved. That means the new heaven and the new earth is involved here. If we were to look at, uh, you don't need to turn there, but we read Nehemiah chapter 9 uh, last week, and I'll read verses 7 and 8 again. And he says here, Thou art the Lord God who didst choose Abram and brought him forth out of the land of the Chaldees and gavest him the name of Abraham and found us his heart faithful before thee and madest a covenant with him to give the land 
of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Gergesites to give it to thee, I say, to his seed and hast performed thy words for thou art righteous. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7 and 8 there, specific, place only to his seed, not to Abraham and his seed. So again, dimensions just to the seed, national Israel. So we need to appreciate as we're looking at this, what covenants are conditional and what covenants are unconditional. All the promises of God in him are yea and in him, amen. There's the positive side to that and there's the downside to it. Some, um, some covenants in the scripture are conditional and you don't want to be any part of those. You just leave those alone. Those belong to national Israel. Those belong to the seed of Abraham. They do not belong to Abraham and his seed. All the promises that belong to us that are eternal promises were made to Abraham and his seed. So what you don't ever want to do is get caught up in um, the foolishness of this world and be disputing about that land of Palestine over there because it's not for you. It wasn't for Abraham. Abraham understood it. Stephen understood it. Talking before the Sanhedrin, standing on the land, he's like, hey, he never received it. And they had to have been thinking, what, are you crazy? We're here. He died there. He was born in Sechem. Um, But no, that never was in view. And by the grace of God, Stephen understands that. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, because all the promises that we have, all the blessings that we have, they're in heavenly places. They're not here on this earth. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That's where our blessings are. Our blessings are not here. Our blessings are not over in... Palestine, our, our blessings are in Christ, in heavenly places, where resides, or where is heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 4, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. We had nothing to do with that. We don't enter into this in any way except for that we are beneficiaries of it. Okay? He has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Whereas God is love, again, the promise is to be had in Christ. We are, gonna, we are holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Your and my will never entered into this wonderful covenant that we are the beneficiaries of. We had nothing to do with it before the foundation of the world. God has chosen us, and he's going to place us in the heavenly Jerusalem to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. We're accepted in Christ, in whom, that would be in Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. We need to forget about earthly issues in so much as though they do not apply to us. This section here in Genesis chapter 12, verses, one, verses 2 and 3, that he will make of Christ a great nation, because all of the children of promise are going to come out of Abraham when he pours it out unto the Gentiles. And that's what he said in Galatians. This was referring to the grace that would come to the Gentiles, that God would bless him, would bless the fruit of his, his womb, and which, of course, is going to be Christ. 
and he would make his name great and he would be in blessing. And indeed, he is a blessing because he is the individual that God used to show his, um, that salvation is by faith alone. Um, he will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And indeed, the Lord does that very thing. We just read the blessings that we enjoy through Christ, and we are indeed blessed as a result of those things. So, again, I want us to appreciate as we move forward in this world that we just look to Christ, forget about what's going on here, uh, keep our eyes on fixed on things above, and don't be caught up in the political foolishness of this world. He's, God is going to destroy every bit of it. And don't let anybody put a hook in your mouth and try to get you walked down the road of works. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we are saved. Amen. Amen.